0: I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is God's word.
1: All right. You may be seated. And, uh, and I have forgotten this because this hasn't always been the case, but we do have some kids today. So there is a kids' room back in the back, and we've got a couple folks watching over kids for you. So if you'd like to send your kids back there, now is the time. You can do that. Um. I'm going to give just a little bit of an explanation before we pray while that happens and just say that we are in a series for the year, and it's called Set Apart, and we're examining the question of why our church does some of the specific things that we do here and in kind of our family of churches, if you will. We're also going to ask why it is that the church needs to be distinct in the way that it uses and utilizes the gospel in the the lives of others. And so that's, uh, that's the context that this comes in. Like I said, actually, last week is a good queue up for this week, though this week can stand alone. But if, if you're able, I'd really encourage you to go and, uh, and listen to what we did last week if you weren't able to catch it. But with that, uh, let, me, let me pray for us and our time together. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for chance to be with these friends who are gathered here and on Zoom Pray for just meaningful time that we would grow in our knowledge of you and of your word. There's a lot of stuff in here uh, this evening, and I pray that you would help us to decipher it, to know what to, uh, to chase after and really consider. I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and show us how to apply this to our lives. And I, uh, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, just for a little bit of review, we talked about discerning gospel issues and about the fact that, you know, gospel-believing people and groups of people are really where this discussion is to be had. Uh, you should really expect gospel issues to be discerned in the church and for the church itself to be founded on the gospel. That's kind of an opening premise for this. You should expect the gospel to be key in the church. And then we discussed that gospel issues are often under-presenting issues, what we learned last week and what grace read to us as a reminder was that Peter, it, it seemed, if you looked at the surface level of what happened in, in this uh, story we're told in Galatians, Peter just didn't spend time with some people. Um, it didn't seem like this huge deal. It seemed like he just didn't get together with some people for the weekend. If you really stripped it down, it just didn't seem like a huge deal. But Paul knew Peter And he knew the situation and what was going on. He was able to get underneath it and see that there were evils lurking underneath this presenting problem. And he addressed those things. And then we discussed what I called theological triage, which is this idea of deciding how critical is an issue to the gospel. There are issues that have to do with your beliefs and your theology, but maybe they don't really impact the gospel as much as you think. And I encourage you, slow down. Uh, really assess, is this something that's critical to the gospel? And we looked at how how Paul not only diagnosed this situation correctly with Peter, and we know that because Peter listened to him and heeded his advice and changed, um, but we see that, well, as I'm saying, it was successful because he he diagnosed it correctly. Okay, so that's last week. And then this week, In this text, immediately following it, we have this explanation of Paul's, and I'm going to talk about how to address gospel issues. Um, And here is Paul, I'm going to read it again, explaining the nuance, the detail underneath what he criticized in Peter. He said to Peter, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And to say that would be to say, We have been set apart by God by birth. We were not left outside of the community of God's people. We, you and me, Peter, were God's people by birth. Yet we know, even though we were God's people by birth, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And these are the four things I want to draw out of here. We, when we address gospel issues, as Paul did, we need to get down to the gospel point. We need to follow the right process with people. We need to rightly handle God's word. And we need to practice what we preach. So get at the gospel point, follow the process, rightly handle the word, practice what we preach. So let me start off with getting at the gospel point. Here's what I mean. Issues that come up in church, in our community, things like what we dealt have dealt with throughout the past year, the different divisions uh, within the church can disturb us on different levels. And I I speak from experience, not as the the professional who always gets this right, but as somebody who has fumbled forward, I would say, even in this past year. But imagine, if you will, that there's a disagreement that you have. And many of you could think of people who are here in this church or were, okay? And you could think of things that you disagreed with in their lives or things that they said. And you began to think about those things. And you began to kind of Mull them over in your mind. And eventually, after it marinated, you decided they are wrong. Um, Either what they are doing is wrong or they're encouraging something that is wrong. And you begin to think to yourself, perhaps, I don't see how a Christian could think that. I don't see how a Christian could come to that kind of conclusion. Now, I know for me, that I am bothered in situations like that for a variety of reasons, and I think I can assume that's true of most of us. Um, I can be bothered not just by the, the issue I see, but by the fact that someone doesn't value as highly something that I value very, very much. That can just irk me. Um, this week, I, or a couple of weeks ago, I took this professional assessment uh, for it was yeah for just kind of assessing my pastoral career. And there was something that came up in it that I desire for processes to be followed and for people to understand my thinking, my rationale before, you know, going a different direction than me or confronting me on something. You know, that came out in this test. And I know some of you are thinking right now, Andy, you needed a test for this? Like, you could have just asked. We could have told you, you have this problem. And I I know, I'm sorry. But the test the test helped and i realized that you know sometimes when there have been conflicts even within this church within this community within friendships of mine you know i've been dealing with how important it is for me for people to understand my thought process and i'm bothered by that not happening even more than sometimes the actual issue underneath it and i'm sure you all have your list of things that just you, when an issue comes up, things that bother you about people's methods or people's attitudes or whatever. And these things are not the gospel point. These are our preferences and proclivities, and they need to be categorized for what they are. They don't necessarily necessitate a confrontation. Sometimes all you need to do is, is say something like, Hey, our relationship's off. Or, I don't understand where you're coming from, or I feel misunderstood. Could you help me understand? Things of that nature. This is relational, emotional stuff. If you think about the situation in Galatians, in this particular text, I, I, I wouldn't even be surprised if Paul didn't have his stuff, his little issues with Peter, actually. I mean, you, you think Peter's the guy that cut off the ear, right, in the garden. I mean, this he's kind of a a rash decision maker. And I could see Paul, there just being things about Peter that Paul would say, I would never do it that way. I would never operate the way you operate. But if that's the case, Paul had dealt with that and processed it into the dust before he confronted Peter because he doesn't go after who Peter is or what Peter's like. He goes after one thing justification by faith alone, a core belief of Christianity. That is what he brings up. And this is important. We need to get at the gospel point. And I, and I want to encourage you that as you become more saturated in grace, and the principles of grace, it becomes easier to pinpoint such issues. But I also need to say, and this is why we're talking about this stuff, is that I am discouraged in many ways because many people, in the church, many leaders do not seem to be talking about the issues underneath the gospel point issues at all, but they seem to be just going at each other without discerning these things, and I, and I think that's something we need to deal with. So that's number one, get at the gospel point. Number two, follow the process. You'll notice here that Paul is not complaining about Peter, okay? Okay. That's, that's an important thing to notice. Paul is not going to this church in Galatia and going like, guys, Peter is the worst. Like, have you even heard what he does and teaches? He doesn't, I don't even know if he believes justification by faith. This dude is on a slippery slope into hypocrisy. Like, can you believe what he said and did? That's not happening here. Paul is telling us about this situation after it has been completely resolved. Completely resolved. He has already addressed Peter. Peter has already agreed with him, and they have already dealt with it. And the only reason Paul is telling us about it is it proves his point that he's an apostle. That's why he brings it up. But we in the church, to our shame, are massively failing at a process That Paul went through, and I think Jesus has taught us to go through. I just listened to a podcast by a leader who was bemoaning something that happened to him a few years back. And a few years back, somebody called him and asked him to be on a podcast with him and didn't tell him what it was about. And it seemed a little off. He didn't do it. And then that same day, that other leader, Christian leader, maybe somebody you know, released a scathing YouTube just ripping this guy to shreds. And he realized he was inviting him on the podcast to do that to him without telling him what it was about. And that kind of stuff is evil and disobedient to Christ. I began to ask the question of myself, like, do we do this when we've had discussions about people here at Mission? Like when we've done our YouTube videos, I was like, uh uh-oh, are we doing that? And I think that's something we need to think about. I don't think so. Because we've been asking, like, how does this affect you and stuff like that. But, but it's a fine line. And we need to be very careful because personal takedowns meant to harm and hinder somebody else's work that don't start in the right way are very damaging to the church. And here's, here's why. Here's why I think we can call it evil and disobedient to Christ because Jesus taught us how to do this right. Right. Matthew eighteen fifteen to 22. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church Let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. And you have to ask the question, how does Jesus feel about Gentiles and tax collectors? He's criticized for loving them and spending time with them, interestingly. So, but still, treat them like they're not card-carrying leaders in your church, probably. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Then Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times, which is a way of saying infinitely. Forgive and forgive and forgive and forgive. I want to clear up two potential roadblocks to you applying to this this scripture to this situation first the word sin some might say teaching something that is against the gospel isn't sin sin is just when you do something that hurts somebody and i feel the need to remind us and myself of what sin is because that word is extremely vast um Sin is the archery term for missing the mark of perfection. Another way of saying it would be inaccuracy. Sin is every inaccuracy ever. Okay? Every action that is imperfect is sin. Every wrong belief is a sinful belief because it is inaccurate. Wrong beliefs impact other people as what happened in Galatia. So the sin of misbelief becomes the sin in action against other, other people. So in other words, breaking the commandment to love God perfectly with your heart, soul, mind, and strength leads to breaking the second commandment to love your neighbor as yourself. Every time. So you see, the Bible's definition of sin is massive and inescapable. Sin is the great democratizer of all people because all have sinned, the Bible says, and fall short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. So sin if you think about it, isn't just stealing somebody's purse. It's the belief that leads you to decide that God is untrustworthy and won't take care of your needs so that you are willing to go and steal the purse in order to take control for yourself and get what you want out of the purse. You see? It's not just the action. It's the underlying belief. Okay, so sin isn't just actions. It's Action fueled by gospel issues. And the gospel issue is the sin that Paul makes much of in Galatians. Secondly, bringing it before the church. That's like a scary thing to say, right? Some of you have church baggage. I I understand. Some of you have been, potentially have been or have seen people hauled up in front of the church to like talk about their, usually it's something sexual. This occurs in a lot of churches and it has left some scars, and when I say this, when I see this in here, what I believe this is, is bring this issue before the, the wise elders that lead your church, is what I believe. And there's reasons I believe that, and I'll, I'll explain those. But that's, this is an, in, an important thing. So we believe here that being a part of Christ's church simply means that you believe the gospel of grace. There are churches in the world that believe that, that to be a member of Christ's church, you have to believe like probably hundreds of the similar doctrines to the people in the same room as you. And those are usually the churches where the person gets brought up in front. Because the belief is that the whole church is mature enough to apply the gospel. In our tradition, the belief is that the elders have been chosen from among the people because of their maturity. And so they are the ones trusted with that kind of information, so it doesn't get pushed out in front of everybody in an indiscreet way. Why do I say that? Well, there's, there's talk in here. Jesus, in Matthew 18, is talking to this, his apostles. And he says some stuff about um, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And that's a parallel. Uh, another time he taught that was in Matthew 16. And he said, I am giving you, and he's talking about the leaders of his church, the keys of the kingdom. And he uses the same phrase, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And this seems very aimed at the most entrusted people within his church, that the decisions that they are making actually are spirit-led decisions when two, of th- two or three of them are gathered together prayerfully making such decisions. So we believe that those elders are entrusted to make Very very difficult distinctions, which is why we don't haul people up in front of the church. But with that in mind, if if those two things are kind of dealt with, look at the process Jesus, Jesus describes here. What do you do if you perceive a brother or sister in the church is missing the mark, is inaccurate in their beliefs or in their life, and especially in this context, if it's against you, if it's impacting you? And I hope that little nuance means and helps you see, don't go hunting for this. Don't go hunting in people's lives. If you see it, if it affects you, okay? But what do you do? Go talk to them, it says. It says, go to them face-to-face. And look, if you can't because of COVID, phone call. I'm going to go ahead and put a, I'm just going to say, I think that's close, all right? Just maybe that's a stretch of God's word. Maybe you need Zoom because you can see their face. Whatever it is, personal, talk to them, right? That's what Paul did with Peter in the moment that we see here. And he addresses him one-on-one, and Peter does, in fact, listen to him. Then Jesus says, if they don't listen, bring someone along. And that echoes that Jesus accepted and understood the Old Testament law that said, if you're going to make a charge against somebody, it needs to be established by two to three witnesses. Witnesses are not your friends. Witnesses are people who observed it, who can corroborate. That is what occurred. It's just wisdom. Bring someone else so that they can be kind of a a person who can discern this outside of you and your frustrations. It doesn't say go talk to other people about it. It does not say that. It says bring them to hear for themselves what this person has to say, not gossip. And and this is so easy to fall into, right? And, And I know, I have done it. You know, the prayer request that is actually sharing a frustration. You know, I just pray that God would work in the hearts of John Simon, mostly because of the things that he teaches. Whoa! What what is this, you know? Don't do that. Bring somebody to hear their point of view themselves. That's really, really important. It's like having a counselor present. What What does a counselor do? A counselor is able to to be there as an objective listener and discerner who can listen to the words of both parties, who can temper the perspectives of both parties, who can help them listen to one another. Bring somebody like that along. If you're thinking, this sounds like a lot of work to deal with a gospel issue, you're right. It better be. If you're not willing to put in that kind of work, don't do it. And then that may not lead to resolution, which is why Jesus said, then if, if it doesn't take it before the church, those mature gospel-saturated discerners of the church who can help you get down to the gospel point. But the whole thing, follow, the, follow a process like this. This is Jesus' process. It really does help. Third, rightly handle the word. This one's very important, and we often make mistakes here. Well-meaning folks make mistakes here. As I mentioned earlier, the people that Paul is combating here in Galatia, um, they were using Bible verses to teach that the people should be circumcised. And Paul is saying this is against the gospel. So the question that I hope would bother you right in this moment is how are Bible verses and the gospel at odds with each other? And they can be. And that should irk you a little. How? how? That's exactly where I want you right now. I want you bothered. There are safeguards so that you don't oppose the Bible with the gospel. And I want to teach them to you. We've talked about them here before. One's the way you interpret the Bible. We highly recommend grammatical and historical interpreting of the Bible. And what do I mean by that? Let's. If you apply these, you will spare yourself and others a lot of grief. What? This is the grammatical piece. What did the original words mean? And this is an amazing thing about the gospel message: is it's so simple. Anyone can understand it. You know, this was the great, like, before the Reformation, before Bibles were being printed and everybody was reading them themselves and you all have multiple at your house. Before that was the case, there was something called, you know, what what we now look back and call clericalism, which is where the professionals, they were the ones that told you what the Bible said. And there's something beautiful about that having been undone a little bit because we should be able to look and read and be like the Berean church in the Bible that examined the word. That is... Very good. But the trouble, and even the old reformers struggled with this tension, is that even though it's good for everyone to be able to read the word, you need to be able to discern the intent of the writer, and that takes some work and some wisdom. We know that our English translation, for instance, doesn't always capture the nuance of Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek. It matters what the words mean. If you just take sometimes the bare translation as you read it, As a 2021 living American, you might get it wrong, and you could do some real damage with that. So it matters what the words mean. Don't don't assume, just because you read a Bible verse, that you understand it. Dig hard. Ask those that know the languages. Do work before you take that and oppose somebody with it, especially. Okay, so then the historical question. What did it mean to the original readers? Um, Matt Chandler, the, the famous pastor that yells at people in Texas, is that a good description of him? I don't know. But um, he is doing a series on Revelation right now, and he, he said a really great little bit that I think is just, it, it encapsulates this idea. He said, The book of Revelation cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the people who read it first. Excellent. It cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the people who read it at first. So you don't get to have an American translation of the book of Revelation that's just all Americanized. It can't be. It was delivered to the church of Ephesus, right, and Laodicea. And it needs to be, you know, have continuity to what God said back then. That's important. So we need to ask this question. It gets fumbled, by, fumbled a lot. In our circles, Michaela and I are in a class, and I'm, I've been giving this class a little bit of a hard time. I really do like the class. It's a financial class. It's great. But they've been fumbling this one, unfortunately, in the Bible study book, real bad. Real bad. And it's frustrating. Um, there's Romans 13, which you, many of you know we studied last year here at Mission. It talks about submission to authority and that you owe submission to authority and taxes to the governing authorities because God instituted them, right? Right? That's why they took a scripture out of there that said, Oh, nothing to anyone except for love and said it had to do with getting a loan. Like, no, it did not mean that ever. It definitely didn't mean that when they wrote it to the Romans, Paul wasn't giving them a talk on automotive loans. It's just obvious. And so I told the guy who's teaching the classes, like, that's not okay. Like, I, I can't say that. I cannot agree with the way you use this verse. Please take it out. And, that, and why does that matter? Because when that stuff happens, I mean, that seems kind of benign, right? Like, oh, because you know, I'd rather not have an auto loan. I'm generally fine with that. But sometimes scriptures get taken out of their context and they are made to mean really catastrophic things that damage people. And if you set a precedent that it's okay in the Bible study book, then how in the world are you going to stand against it when it happens over here. It's, it's really important. So you need to ask what the words mean and what the, the context is that the writer is addressing. And then you can ask, what does it mean for me? Another um, a- example of this, and we have talked about this one here too, 1 Corinthians where, where Paul talks about head coverings. You know, and I, I like to look around the room, any women with hats on? No, nobody is following this law. Nobody is following the Bible right now. According to what Paul said, to cover your heads, ladies. Why? Why don't we do it? It's in the Bible, right? Well, as far as I can tell, you have to ask questions. You have to ask questions like, what did it mean for them to cover their heads in this specific place? And so when Paul asked them to cover their heads, what was it supposed to communicate? And the best I can understand is that it had to do with respecting their husbands and it had to do with modesty. And so then a question would be, is that are those invalid things? I don't think so. I think if you're married, you should respect your husband. And I think that modesty is absolutely a right and noble thing to do. The question would be, in our context, what does it look like to respect your husband and be modest? I know that for us, when Michaela wears a hat, it's because she's going to work out right now. That is what it communicates to me. I don't see it and go, she respects me. Right? I'm like, she's going to the gym. That's what it is. So the the question is not, you know, what do the bare words say, but what's the context of this so you can actually believe and apply the word? Because the sin, the thing that you can mess up is you either throw the Bible away and go, well, it just doesn't apply, which is not true, or you apply it so literally that you actually don't get under it to the point. You have a bunch of women wearing hats that still don't respect their husbands, Right? We have to know what the Bible is saying. We have to get under the words. And that, these are key tools to applying the Bible well. Lastly, biblical theology. This one's the key to Paul's argument in Galatians. Biblical theology is when you ask this question, where are we in the Bible storyline right now? And where is this Bible verse? And therefore, what does it mean to us? Okay? Okay. The Judaizers in Paul's day weren't wrong that circumcision was commanded in the Bible. They just didn't understand where they were in the storyline and where circumcision was and what its role was. That is what they missed. Okay? Paul, because of his belief that Jesus had come and so conclusively finished the work of the sacrificial and the purity laws of the Old Testament, he saw that circumcision was preparatory for Christ. And so therefore, it was no longer in use, though it was still important to understand why it had been in use. He didn't throw those circumcision verses away. He just believed that Christ had done something so conclusive that he had made a new people. I mentioned this last week. He said there was a mystery of the gospel, that the Gentiles and the Jewish people had been made one, a new people, a spiritual house of Israel. He, because of that belief, said circumcision was about when it was a national identity, now it's a spiritual identity. He didn't say circumcision was stupid, wrong, or there was no point to it. He just said it's over. That's biblical theology. That's understanding where are we in the storyline, where was this verse in the storyline. That helps you apply the Bible accurately, okay? So we need to get to the gospel point, follow that process, Matthew 18, that Christ gave us. We need to rightly handle the word, which means we need to understand the words themselves, what was happening in history, and we need to understand where we are in the Bible storyline. And my final idea here is practice what we preach, and therefore teach others to practice what they preach. I know some of you are bracing yourselves for the talk now where I say, So go out there and be nice, you know, and don't do bad things. You know, practice what you preach. It's not the talk. It's different. Look, the philosophers and the scientists of our day are catching up with what the scriptures have said all along. And that is this, that patterning your life according to something teaches you and trains you to believe what you want to believe. You don't just start believing something. You train yourself to believe something. Okay? I think Paul was able to address Peter so effectively because Paul had impressed himself and trained himself to believe the gospel deeply. So when a gospel issue presented himself, presented itself to him, he knew what to do. He was prepared. He was trained, which is why he teaches his disciple Timothy. Train yourself for godliness, right? Some of you have read James K.A. Smith, because Nick and I have nerded out on his stuff for years, but he will teach you this. If you want to know how to love something, if you want to know how you love the things you love, look at the liturgies of worship in your life, he'll say. What, What do I mean by that? Look at the habits and the patterns that teach you to love that thing, right? What do you love? What do you love? Examine it, and you'll find practices that have been fed to you or taught to you that have taught you to love that thing. Do you love to shop? Hmm? Do you love a political party platform? Do you love the United States? Do you love sports or a particular team? Do you love education? Do you love health? Do you love wellness? Do you love the stock market? I guarantee if you if if you have any of those or you can think of another thing that you love, you will find behind it meditations that you meditate upon day and night that teach you to love that thing. The shopping catalog, or the shoppable Instagram, right? Or the email that you are subscribed to, or the highlight reel that you watch over and over again, or the, you know, the certain teacher you always go to to hear the way that they teach, or the workout club, or the little graph that shows you how your stocks are doing. You meditate upon it day and night. I guarantee you can find a temple, right? The mall or the cool new shopping center, the uh, political edifice, the stadium, the university, the gym, right? Wall Street. There are temples to all of these things. I just, you know, I I went to a spring training game. I went and I put way too much work into getting one of these little distance seats because I like baseball. I probably sort of love it. And there are, you walk up to the temple, right? It's the small version because it's spring training. And then there are the rituals, and there's like the seventh inning stretch, and they didn't have one because they were only doing seven innings, so there was a fifth inning stretch. And guess what the guy next to me said? I kid you not. He said, this is heresy. (laughs) We take it so seriously. Like, all the things that we love are built in, their habits, their rituals. We meditate upon them. That's how we love them. And James K.A. Smith will say, so if you want to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength— You are going to have to train yourself through all of the ways. You have to go to the temple. You have to come to, this is why you go to church, because it trains you to love God and believe the gospel. You need to read the word, not because it's, oh, it's a thing I have to do. It trains you to love God and believe the gospel. You need to come before the Lord in repentance daily because it trains you just to humble yourself before God. And in due time, he will exalt you. It trains you to come to the table, which we miss, but to say this is the only way that I am saved is by the body and blood of Christ, not anything that I have brought of my own. These things train you, they shape you to love God, which is why you need them more. If we did an inventory, if we want to love God, there should be more practices around loving God than any of our other loves. Our other loves should all be secondary. And I think if we're honest, that is not the case, which is why we're not good at identifying what the gospel's about and applying it to ourselves or to anybody else. I just read J.P. Moreland, another philosopher, Christian philosopher from Talbot, on anxiety. And he spends time, he's saying basically the same thing, but he gets into some details about the brain. This is the kind of stuff Mike loves to talk about. You go talk to Mike about the brain after this. But, you know, and I, as I was reading, I was like, I think Mike's already told me this a couple of times. But our brain creates these grooves. It's like, it's like a record. The grooves in a record. And we naturally fall into them and follow the same patterns that we're used to. And you can change them by changing habits. So he was saying, he's telling his story about being extremely anxious, and he said, I was always afraid that nothing good was going to happen to me, so he built in a practice, and I have to give props to Michaela because she's been doing the same practice in our home, and that is of just being grateful, stating things you were grateful for on a regular basis. And it actually is scientifically true that if you meditate upon the things that you were grateful for, you will begin to think grateful thoughts in time. You will change your mind. Change your mind should really not just be a thing that's like, hey, change your mind. It's like, no, train yourself to change your mind. So if you want to believe the gospel, you have to meditate upon it and then apply its truth. So it might be a daily practice of waking up and saying, like, I am no longer who I was. I am a new creation created for good works in Christ Jesus that he prepared for me before the foundation of the world. And then just think about what they could be. I mean, that's actually training your brain to believe what the Bible says is true about you. And how many of us really feel like that's true about us when we go through the day? I am new, right? We don't. And then if we want to address and teach anyone else how to believe the gospel, I've talked about the logs in our eye recently. We cannot point out the speck of unbelief in someone else if our bodies have not been trained to walk in the truths of the gospel ourselves. And this is where, why people think we're such big hypocrites, because we are. We're not, we don't believe it. We don't walk in it. We like to point fingers at things we don't do ourselves. To practice what we preach is, is not just to like, prove it to other people. It's first to believe it ourselves so that we can actually invite someone else into believing it and show them how. And then I think we'll actually be good at addressing gospel issues. I believe that Paul, we talked about this early on when we started doing Galatians, he spent three years in Arabia before he went and started his work of ministry. I think for three years, he meditated on what he knew all this information about the Bible. I think he meditated, what does the gospel mean for us? And that's why his letters are so deep. And that's why he could talk to people about the ways that they believed so effectively. All right? I want to encourage you care about gospel issues in your life and in the lives of others, but really, really take these things to heart. Get to the gospel point. Really do. And then think and shape your life according to the gospel as you rightly handle the word. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for your word, that we have something to go to that can shape us. God, I know the truth about myself, and I'm sure it's true of us all. We're so prone to wonder. The old hymn, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We love so many things more than we love you. And so we don't know how to disciple anybody. God, I pray that you would call us back to yourself. That you would give us eyes to see the gospel in the word, that you would help us to love you more than anything else, and then make us effective, that we would contend for the gospel within the church effectively, and that we would represent it to a watching world beautifully and in a compelling way. We're going to need your Spirit's help for this, so we ask for it in Jesus' name. We're going to worship in three ways together. We're going to sing together. There's giving in the back, which is a way to express what you love. We miss the Lord's Supper, but we'll remember that we come to Christ alone and we bring nothing of ourselves. And as we enter into that, we're going to take a time of confession. I want you to ask these questions in confession. Jesus, how am I doing in my commitment to love you? And then, How have I treated my fellow believers this year in light of the gospel? And then pray the simple prayer, have mercy on me, and just sit in silence. After confession, feel free to stand and sing or sit and reflect as we begin to sing together. And join me for two minutes of silence after I pray just a short prayer entering us into confession together. God, hear our prayers. We do come before you broken and sinful. Just thinking about that definition of sin now, it's so true. Even our best intentions, our righteousness, as your word says, are like filthy rags. So we come to you acknowledging that it weren't for your, if it weren't for your grace, we wouldn't be able to stand. And we're so grateful that you're so full of grace and so willing to stand for us in Christ. So we bring our confessions to you because we know that you love us, you're faithful to us, and you love to forgive. You're full of mercy. So I hear our prayers now as we pray.